Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. It's been a while, uh, but I have another edition of Sentencing Guideline Confidential. It's been actually probably, uh, I think, almost a year since I've done a uh, one of these podcasts where I talk about things that are sometimes overlooked, misunderstood. Uh, and the impetus of this is uh, coming up here in one month, uh, I am going to be in Washington, D.C. for the SCCE's annual Compliance and Ethics Institute. It's going to be actually at the National Harbor uh, in Washington, or actually technically in Maryland, uh, this year. Uh, and I'm doing a session with Kathleen Grilly, the general counsel of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, on the first full day, which is Monday the 16th, I believe. Yes, yeah, so exactly one month from today uh, at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time. So for those of you who are attending the uh, SCCE's CEI conference in uh, National Harbor, we would love it if you join us for that. Uh, but I want to give, uh, for those of you who aren't going to be able to make it to D.C. this year, uh, give you a little uh, piece of the presentation or one of the topics in the presentation that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, the title of our, our presentation uh, this year is uh, "Organization Organizational Sentencing Guideline Confidential. Uh, does Chapter 8 still matter? Uh, and if so, why? Uh, as you all know, I'm a homer for the uh, sentencing guidelines, uh, worked for the Sentencing Commission, uh, worked on the 2010 amendments to the Organizational Sentencing Guidelines. So I think you know what my answer to that question is. Uh, but uh, I think it's uh, 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 interesting to me that there are still parts of the sentencing guidelines, even though they aren't particularly lengthy or uh, I don't think they're too convoluted, uh, certainly not for legal drafting, and uh, things that just still aren't well understood. And I wanted to talk about one of those things uh, that's in the presentation that we're preparing for, uh, for SCCE this year uh, that uh, is often not completely understood. It, and it's pretty surprising to me that this is still an area where there's uh, confusion. Well, maybe it's not surprising because it, it, it is a little convoluted, but not terribly convoluted. Uh, and that is the actual role of the quote-unquote chief compliance officer uh, and the day-to-day uh, -day, uh, compliance staff. Um, the first thing you need to understand is that there is no mention whatsoever in the sentencing guidelines uh, of the term chief compliance officer or chief ethics and compliance officer or any uh, specific title designation. There are only two uh, discussions uh, about the people involved with and or have that have responsibility for the program. The first is, uh, quote, the specific individuals or individual with high level per, within the high level personnel that shall be assigned overall responsibility for the compliance and ethics program. So you have a high level personnel and that may be a chief compliance officer, that may be a general counsel, that may be somebody else. But that is one group that's discussed within the sentencing guidelines. And then I would argue the more important individual or individuals are 
those within the organization that shall be delegated day-to-day operational responsibility for the compliance and ethics program. And this comes out of Section 8B, 2.1B, 2C of the Organizational Sentencing Guidelines, Chapter 8 of the Guidelines. This specific individual or individuals uh, with day-to-day responsibility is really the focus of responsibilities and the drafting of the organizational guidelines as it pertains to an ethical program. It really is. Uh, You do need somebody in the high-level personnel of the organization that has oversight, but you need this specific person. Now, can they be one and the same? Yes. And they certainly can be one and the same for a organization uh, that's smaller. That's the more common situation where you will find that. The other misconception uh, I want to talk about right here at the top when we're talking about this role is that it's not a legal role. That's also something that is not in the sentencing guidelines. It's not in uh, a lot of the other guidance either, but it's still a major misconception that's out there, that this is somehow a legal role or that the uh, high-level role, the first role I talked about, is a legal role. That is also not true. It's interesting to note, however, uh, that back in 2010, uh, during the last last uh, cycle when the when Chapter 8 was significantly um, uh, amended, uh, that the Department of Justice uh, suggested in their public comment, it's actually public comment from March 2010, which you can find on the still on the U.S. Uh, sentencing Commission's website if you're interested in, uh, in that, that much inside baseball if you're a sentencing nerd. Uh, but it's interesting that in that public comment, the uh, department did suggest that this ought to be a legal role or there ought to be a role for the general counsel or chief legal officer in this process. That was rejected by the Sentencing Commission. So it's not as if they haven't contemplated this. It's that they've rejected it, and I think that's pretty clear. So when it is suggested either by general counsel or by someone else that this is a legal role, absolutely, that is not true. It is not designated as a legal role. It's not designated as any specific role, whether that's audit, HR, or or operations. It's left open, and it's left to the organization to determine what the best way to um, organize and structure this, uh, uh, that the different roles might be for that organization. And again, these two roles, high level and specific uh, operational, might be the same person in a smaller organization or an organization uh, that lacks a lot of complexity. But my uh, experience is that even in larger organizations where this is just not the case in practical terms, you often still have this problem or issue, I should say, where uh, there's confusion about those roles. And why does this come up? It comes up usually in some form from the general counsel, the chief uh, compliance officer, the chief auditor, uh, head of HR, head of finance, whoever has that high-level role, um, saying uh, uh, having the impression that the person with the day-to-day compliance role doesn't need access to the board of directors. And this is the crux of what I want to talk about because that is wrong. Uh, That happens uh, pretty frequently when I uh, work with organizations on their compliance program and reviewing their compliance program. Uh, The access to the board of directors 
for the person responsible for the day-to-day operation of the program, that uh, operational role, uh, is uh, sometimes severely limited or doesn't exist. So what do the guidelines say? And this is why uh, the chief legal officer or others feel that this is the appropriate way uh, to, to handle it is because if you just look at Section 8B 2.1, uh, there is potential for confusion. And, and let me explain why. Uh, when it talks about this role, it says individuals with operational responsibilities shall report to high-level personnel, so whoever that might be, whether that's chief compliance officer, uh, general counsel, what have you, and as appropriate to the governing authority, which is board of directors or uh, audit committee or whatever appropriate subgroup. So this as appropriate gives uh, you the impression that it is not uh, a requirement necessarily, but just as appropriate. Well, that's pretty vague and pretty open. The other uh, place where this is mentioned in 8B 2.1 is in the application note or commentary, uh, application note three, where it says the individuals with day-to-day operational responsibility for the program typically should no less than annually give the governing authority or appropriate subgroup thereof information on the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. So the, the regular update typically should as appropriate. These are kind of weaselly words or, 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 or malleable words, shall we, sh- shall we say. And I think that's why uh, organizations still to this day have operational compliance personnel, people who are doing the day-to-day work that don't have access, regular access to the board. Now, there is what I would call the fail-safe in 8B 2.1. It's in 8B 2.1 B2C, and it says to carry out this operational responsibility, uh, the day-to-day operational people should be given adequate resources, appropriate authority, and direct access to the governing authority or an appropriate subgroup. So what that ends up being, if it's followed at all, is what I like to call this failsafe, which is if you make a query about it to an organization, the chief compliance officer or the general counsel or whomever is that high-level person will say, well, yeah, they can they can go to the board if they need to. If there's something happens, they can go to the board. So they have direct access, but it's not happening on a regular basis. So uh, there's a problem. Uh, there are practical problems, but there's also a problem because if you're only looking at 8B 2.1 of the sentencing guidelines, you're missing some essential guidance around this relationship to the board of directors. 8C 2.5F, this is under culpability score. So this is when you're calculating uh, what the uh, sentence will be for an organization that's being sentenced in front of a judge. There is a part of the calculation that looks at whether there is an effective ethics and compliance program. And under this section, you don't get credit if you unreasonably delay reporting to the government. You don't get credit if a high-level person or a substantial authority person participated, condoned, or was willfully ignorant of the fence. And that's a killer because substantial authority is basically anyone in the organization. And so prior to the amendments in 2010, no one got credit. There were some odd examples uh, in in the historical data of the sentencing commission where it might have credit might have been applied, but it did not really apply. So in 2010, the sentencing commission reexamined this and they added what I would call the carrot, the exception. 
that you could get credit for having an effective program, even if the compliance and ethics program uh, uh, didn't, you know, uh, even if there was a violation, as long as the individual or individuals with operational responsibility for the compliance program, so the day-to-day person, not the high-level person, have direct reporting obligations to the governing authority or appropriate subgroup thereof. So you get credit only if, credit for an effective program under the sentencing guidelines, only if the person or persons with the day-to-day responsibility have direct reporting obligations. What does that mean? Well, helpfully, back in 2010, the Sentencing Commission created a definition of what direct reporting obligations are. That's in Application Note 11 of 8C 2.5. And here's what it says. Direct reporting obligations to the governing authority means that the individual, the day-to-day person, has express authority. So it's written down, it's understood, it's expressed to communicate personally to the governing authority or appropriate subgroup thereof on any matter involving criminal conduct or potential criminal conduct and, and this is the important part, no less than annually on the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance and ethics program. So this is very different from the language we see in uh, 8B 2.1. It's talking about an expressed uh, relationship. So written down in the charter of the audit committee of the board of directors or a charter for the compliance program somewhere, express authority, clear uh, authority to go to the board and communicate personally. So one-on-one to the board or the appropriate subgroup thereof, the audit committee of the board on criminal conduct. So whenever that comes up, potential criminal conduct, whenever that may come up and specifically not less than annually on the implementation and effectiveness of the compliance program. So if you have a program right now where the person who has operational authority over the program is not reporting at least annually on the operation of the program, you're probably not meeting the standard. So there's a couple of questions here. Well, number one, why is this important? Why is this an issue? Well, it's an issue because that fail-safe I talked about earlier is not very effective. It's not practical. If you have never been in front of the board of directors, you've never talked to or spoken with the audit committee chair of the audit committee of the board of directors that oversees compliance at your organization, how likely is it that you, when something bad is going on, when you need to use that failsafe, that you as the operational compliance person are going to be able to navigate that and basically uh, create a new relationship? And how are you going to do that? You know, what are the pro- you know there are a lot of practical considerations there. Uh, it's not very effective. So you need to have an ongoing, regular communication, a relationship that that exists prior to that, to really have effective reporting to the board. So the final one of the final things I want to talk about here is how do we determine who those individuals with the day-to-day operational responsibility might be, who they are, who they might be, who monitors uh, misconduct, uh, who conducts investigations, who's responsible for uh, compliance communication, for compliance training, uh, for budgeting, who's responsible for updating and maintaining and uh, drafting standards and policies, 
or organizing those policies and putting them in a policy portal. Who does the work? That's the day-to-day person. Now, if that happens to be you as the general counsel and chief compliance officer and maybe multi, many other hats in a smaller organization, that's fine. It could be the same person. But I submit to you that in many cases, and probably the majority of cases of organizations over, say, uh, a couple hundred employees, it's not the same person. It's not. It's not the general counsel who may also be designated as the chief compliance officer. It's somebody else. Um, and if that person or persons are not delivering that annual report uh, and don't have a, a documented express uh, uh, relationship or, or method to go to the board of directors, then it's not compliant with these standards that are laid out in Chapter 8 of the Sentencing Guidelines. And it's a little confusing because the, the, the uh, language exists in two different sections, uh, and that's just a function of the fact that uh, it was um, included to try to overcome this problem with calculating uh, effective programs under the standard that existed before 2010. It was basically impossible to make that standard, and so this exception had to be written into it. Uh, so it's a function of trying to make the guidelines more uh, practical and in, in, in providing this carrot. Uh, for organizations that set out and express relationship and, and, and encourage and cultivate this relationship between the operational compliance personnel and the board of directors. Um, and it's surprising to me um, now almost 10 years later uh, that this is still not, I, I don't think, completely understood. And I think part of it is because you you know there's a, a focus on the language in the one section that is kind of, uh, has some wiggle room in it as far as uh, uh, the operational personnel going directly to the board. Uh, that's not the case in, in this other section in, in 8C uh, 2.5. So if you haven't looked at 8C 2.5, I encourage you to do that. Uh, and I encourage you to take a good look at um, what's um, how your organization handles these relationships. Um, in the show notes for this episode, I will put a link uh, to Chapter 8. It's easily found on the U.S. Sentencing Commission's uh, website, so you can look at and review uh, 8B 2.1 and 8C 2.5 and the uh, associated application notes I've been discussing today. Um, uh, would love it if you uh, would join us uh, if you are going to be at the SCCE, SCCE's uh, event in uh, National Harbor in a month. Uh, please do come by. Uh, we're going to have a booth. Uh, Morehead Compliance Consulting will have a booth there. Um, so we'd love to uh, see you uh, if you're a listener to the podcast. Um, and as always, if you are uh, a regular listener and you haven't subscribed yet, please do subscribe on iTunes or wherever you uh, get your podcast uh, episodes. It does make a difference for us to have uh, subscribers, and we do appreciate all listeners. And please do get in touch if you have questions or would like to talk to us about anything. Uh, you can reach us at uh, compliancebeat.com or Morehead Consulting at any time. So until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.